Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag and I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right, I mean? No, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there. The Rewatchingtons, bomb in its full Ooh. and unadulterated cut, early drops of Cinephobe episodes, and so much more. You said the OG pod. Now, is it new or is it old? Mace, I'm glad you asked that. It is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old OG pod. Oh. So it's me, Zach, Trey, Waz, Tom. I love those guys. Just like we always were. Going back to the True Hoop days, mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic, recapturing it, and putting it back out. We're talking hoops. We're talking pop culture. And most importantly, we're talking for 40 minutes for free. Mm-hmm. But then another specific Patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes. Funny enough about that OG pod, you're getting Tom and Trey on Mondays. You're getting me and Waz, aka Zosny, on Wednesdays. Amin's floating in between. I'm a floater. You never know when you're going to get Amin in those, so you got to listen to them all. And what if I'm not sure what Maze looks like? Because I've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora. He's got a weird voice. How can I see for myself what this Maze character actually looks like? It's crazy you don't know the answer to this. Hmm. because it's the Cinephobe Pod YouTube page. What? The CT5s on the Cinephobe Pod YouTube page. You can look at all of us. You can get all the OG pods on YouTube too at CountTheDings1 on YouTube, at Cinephobe Pod on YouTube, patreon.com slash CountTheDings gets you everything all in one feed. You can link it to your Spotify. And now enjoy the show. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. We at Pack Your Nice love to draft, so much so that we decided to draft Top Chef contestants live on the podcast. Drafting is the best, and if you're into fantasy sports, I got a stat for you. Did you know that your chances of winning on draft are 80% better than on salary cap sites? That's why Draft is my favorite fantasy site. No more getting crushed by the pros. And it's not just me. More than 1 million people that have already downloaded Draft 2. Play in a real live NBA draft right now and be done in under 5 minutes. Get paid out the very next day. Drafts are filling every second, so you can join one whenever you want. All new players get a free entry into a real money draft when you make your first deposit. But make sure to use my promo code HEALTHY. H-E-A-L-T-H-Y. HEALTHY. That's right, play in a real money draft for free just by using my promo code HEALTHY. But it gets even better. Draft is so sure you'll love it that they're even offering Pack Your Knives listeners a money-back guarantee of up to $100. Just search Draft in your app store or go to Draft.com and play free right now with promo code HEALTHY. I'm Kevin Arnovitz. And I'm a very sad Tom Haverstra. Tom, what is going on with Team Tom? As we enter, this was the, the fourth week of Top Chef on the air. This is our fifth episode. Um, and, and you're taking on water. <laughs> so sad. I can't believe it, Kevin. I was so confident in all my studying and all my research, all my analytics. thought Tyler Anderson was going to be a home run. And he was, for three episodes, was a high flyer. Um, And then just came crashing down in this episode. And the editing team for Top Chef made sure you felt his sadness in every shot. I don't know if you picked up on this. But every time they showed Tyler, he was just glum. Just, like, really upset. A lot of pathos. So just a review for our listeners uh, the big challenge, elimination challenge, winner was Chris, and we will get to his fried chicken and biscuits that look like the pillows of angels. Oh, um, and eliminated yes. was Tyler Anderson in a murder's row elimination chopping block that included Tyler, Bruce Kalman, and, and, and Joe Flam, who I've called the big fundamental on this show. And it was just a topsy-turvy, a lot of surprises, just a really stressful episode. Uh, even I found the, uh, the, the quick fire challenge, which I'm not crazy about just because I don't like children. <laughs> I thought of you, Kevin. I was like, oh, Kevin's going to hate. This is like your seventh no, circle. No, no, no. Right, right, let, let me just clarify. Like, it's, <laughs> I don't hate children. It's just like for all the criteria that you can judge food by, its appeal to an 11-year-old just doesn't interest me it's not why i like top chef so um i'm just you know kids are i I don't find your kid as cute as you find him i don't find him as adorable as you find him i don't find him to be as engaging on television as you find him to be um i I think children can be left at home for top chef it's a it's a grown-up show uh and there was a little cross promotion with the top chef juniors or whatever the uh, you know the top chef munchkins or whatever the show is called so um which my next door neighbor apparently was on and was uh and w- w- finished very high might have even won i have to check in on that but at any rate chris wins with his fried chicken tyler what happened there you know i think tom colicchio said it um he was uh hereditarily challenged was that the right phrasing hereditarily challenged where he couldn't really draw too much inspiration. And this is one of those things where if you're a white guy with a Southern California background and not really much heritage to speak of that, you know, of, um, this was going to be a really difficult, um, 
elimination challenge. And man, he just, he lost inspiration. He was struggling from the get go. You could feel it that he was just was not feeling this, this theme. And I thought he had the perfect analogy at the end when he's doing his outro and he's like, I feel like the dragon where there's just one soft spot and it, the arrow just hit it. And shot this was me it. there, I think is what he said or something to that. Yeah, effect. <laughs> yeah. there is. It, it's interesting because there's probably a Joan Didion essay or, or some piece of cultural criticism about watching a white Protestant guy from Southern California during the 21st century kind of stumble into this challenge of trying to tap their heritage at a moment when, you know, celebrating diversity and and. Uh, is such a is such a prominent collective exercise, and and it was interesting to watch. Uh, you know, I, I think Carrie was another who's like, I don't know, I'm kind of from Idaho. Here's a pierogi. Yeah, yep. And, and it was really interesting. Tyler was was at a loss. I mean, like so, and it's even more prominent in Southern California, I, I think, among white folks than it would be in you know. I mean, Joe's a Chicago guy from you know Ital- Italian guy from Chicago. I mean, that is a palpable identity. Uh, you know, if if you parts of the ethnic white Northeast. I mean, there's a lot of that, but, but here is this guy who grew up in long beach who just doesn't think in terms of the way I do about Jewish food in my household. I mean, I was constantly being, you know, growing up in a household of brisket and kugel and, and all that stuff. So it was so interesting to watch that cultural component and just, and was watching it bite him in the ass. Oh, it really did. And it seemed like, you know, I'm trying to think of the right NBA. And is this the 20 is 2007 Dallas Mavericks? Yes, it is. It exactly who it is. Just come out with an amazing regular season. Dirk Nowitzki wins the MVP and then boom out in the first round. First, the number one seed out in the first round. That's what it felt like was just the juggernaut. And then just it. It was tough. And that Bear Den, the Bear Den bottom three with Joe and Bruce and Tyler entering this episode before getting into this episode, you might have picked those as the three favorites to win the whole damn thing. Yeah, I mean, I I will say this because I I was thinking about just what an odd season this has already been, even though we're only in week four. uh, In so far as like, you know, I don't I think if you asked, you know, do you have any clarity about who the favorite is after four episodes? I mean, the answer is no. In fact, I mean, I, I think to that extent, this might be the week I fell in love with Mustache Joe. Because, yes. you know, I think to me, as is, is much water as you're taking on on Team Tom, like I think you have right now the favorite. I mean, he is so on his game. By the way, I just, can I just talk about First of all, he just nailed the challenge too, right? Like, like he's a guy who comes from Italian heritage, but it wasn't like, hey, look, it's Italian food. Here's a guy in a gondolier's costume, like, like red sauce. <laughs> you know, he does this beautiful chicken tortelloni with with a farro cabbage. Did you see the presentation and that beautiful, exquisite simplicity? The, the the moist medallion of chicken with the crispy skin bookended by these two tortellonis, the mushroom puree. You could almost feel the earthiness of the dish. And I just think that like to the extent, I mean, yes, bad news. You've lost a lot of, you've lost a lot of challenges on Team Tom. But I think you might be sitting with the guy who, though he didn't, he came in second or third in the, in the elimination challenge. Uh, I think he's kind of emerged as the guy that if I was redrafting tomorrow, I'd have number one. All right, so to get into those points, right now the update is you are ahead with 87 points on your team, and I am at 32. So you are way ahead on me. But we both have the top scorers, Chris 
The Amish soul food Chris is now 30 points. He's got a victory and a elimination challenge and a top three finish, as well as Joe Stash ha- is at sitting at the top uh, spot with 30 points. So you have not just Chris, you've got Fatima, who is just rolling on all cylinders as well. Um, and I'm just I'm struggling. I've got I've got uh, Joe. I got Carrie, who I don't know if she did win an elimination challenge, which was very impressive. But it's not like I'm considering her as as a as a heavy favorite. You've got Tanya, Joseph, Laura, brother, two, all still in it. I've got Adrian. I've got Bruce, and I got Jim. I I I, I like Adrian. I think I think Adrian's gonna hang around. I really do. I, I think she's I think she's a good air free ball kind of kind of chef and i've talked about that with joe flam and i think i think bruce still this has a lot i I think he's going to rack up some w's here one more thing about tyler i want to say is um if i ever get eliminated from a competition reality show i hope the rest of the contestants react the way they did for tyler i always find that's one of the most interesting things Mm -hmm. to watch when the pack your knives is announced is how does the rest of the house or or or, or the chef testants react and it was like it was like a natural tragedy like, did you like, see Fatima? Oh my God! If Fatima and and and, and two were like, it was like a wake, like the, the the group hug. Like this guy was so adored, so respected. Like it just this kind of wonderful combination of self deprecation and, and humility, but like total like a chef's chef. Yes. And it was heartening. I mean, like clearly, just a, a, a an elimination that affected the group as a whole. And he's so good. I mean, throwing out season nine, thirteen elimination challenge the first elimination challenge winners of the 13 only one was voted off so soon kuniko from season 10 everyone else finished in the top 10 tyler finished 11th in this field so the average if you want some analytics the average out uh place finish for someone who won the first elimination challenge is 3.9 so they finished so in three point like basically they beat fourth place more times than not yeah and and this is this is such an upset here to see Tyler uh, on the outs and we'll just run right through it. The last chance kitchen. He was eliminated there, too. So th- this isn't a case where he's going to come back into the competition um, winning that the the consolation bracket because he was eliminated in that one, too, for his puree. So I have I feel so so sorry for Tyler because he was a star for the first few episodes of this season. You know, ambition's a funny thing on that show. You know, he comes out with the, I, I've always loved the sort of zucchini or squash noodles in lieu of, of pasta as a carbophobe myself. And, you know, the kids aren't buying it and, and like to hell yeah. with the kids, screw the kids. I know, I mean, shit. <laughs> when did you see the, the shade that the tall girl was throwing at everyone? And, and like, everyone was just um, the the chefs you could see in the background like the, the camera would pan to the chefs whenever that girl talked oh she was just ripping the food and I there's a certain kind of hum- humility or how humbling it must be for these amazing top chefs in the world to hear this eight year old tell them yeah that sucked. <laughs> now, I will I will go eat Tyler zucchini noodle pho anytime he wants to anytime. have it. Um, one thing I do have about the, the final though, what was so it, I was kind of surprised he 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 
he fell. And this this is the reason. Generally speaking, if you can nail the preparation of the protein, if you cook the meat well, you can generally survive in the first eight weeks or so. And and it didn't look like the tri-tip was off in any way. Okay, the plate was a little all over the place. Yeah, they had the meatballs and the tri-tip and the pico de gallo with the beets and this other thing. Like, I get that there were a lot of component parts, but I don't recall ever seeing this early in the competition. Somebody who kind of just generally got the protein cooked all right get eliminated yep. like that. Like I was, I thought he'd take a little bit of a whooping, and they they take him to task for being all over the place or not finding his heritage or, you know, or not getting the picnic California thing right. But I, I just was kind of really surprised that the meat looked perfectly okay. Like I, that, it's just surprising that early on. I mean, that's the kind of area that will punish you in the last five weeks where hey, everyone cooked a great meal. Now we're starting to, you know pick nits here over small differences but i I just i don't recall somebody who nailed the protein and but just they they they, they threw him under anyway it's very surprising in that same light kevin how bruce did not realize how overdone his goulash was right his his lamb so that was really surprising that tyler who cooked his meat what seemed to be fine and bruce who overcooked his meat and bruce wasn't sent home Joe was not sent home. I think this was a case of Tyler. Um, the rest of the dishes weren't s- just alarmingly bad. And so Tyler was just the recipient of some bad, uh, bad luck there. By the way, Tom's okraphobia is continuing to rear its head on a regular basis. <laughs> like, I think that's a brilliant way to sort of garnish as somebody who makes gumbo at least a couple times a year during during summer season. Like I, I now I, like I'm going to steal a little Tanya hint here, which next time I make my okra, I'm also going to do a batch of fried okra. And kind of have it as uh, on, on top, and and he Tom notoriously hates okra, which is fine. I think we're all entitled to hate one or two things, but uh, I, I have to. We have to ask. Maybe we'll ask one of our guests. Like, do you actually actively avoid okra in the presence of Tom Calicchio? Because you know you just know he's going to punish you for it. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so uh, let's talk about Chris. Big big win, and and there was an interesting theme I found in two instances in this episode. He said something interesting. He says, I'm not trying to chef it up. And I thought it was also interesting because not, not a few minutes later at the chopping block, Tom kind of threw some shade at Bruce's plate, the goulash plate, the, the aforementioned goulash. Yes. Where he said, a little too chefy. And mm. I, it, it kind of – what I thought it spoke to both Chris's successes in not trying to chef it up and in Bruce's flaw for, for trying to be overly chefy, how, how chefiness is a, is a, is a double-edged sword. It can be, uh, it can be wielded with great authority. Right. Because Kevin, like Joe Stash, that was kind of stash, um, chefy, that right? Was like stash-y ass, that was some chefy right. ass stuff there. Yes. So chefy is just a really fine line, Tom. Yes. It's a very big risk to, you know, kind of flex, right? Flex your chef skills. Um, and try to have a presentation where it's like you bring out the bust out the tweezers and you go and and you absolutely work on that presentation. Whereas, oh my God, Chris, his dish, maybe it's just that I was drinking all day yesterday for the for the bowl game, but I wanted that fried chicken and biscuits and the collar. It's just oh, it looks so so good. But it does speak to the certain, and they're always strains. One of my favorite themes of the show in general, all fifteen seasons, is kind of this populism that, that will take hold. You get chefs like Isaac 
where who who come in and there there is a certain I, I think resentment of the elites. In fact, chefiness is sort of a is the culinary version of the elites. It can be wielded mm-hmm. as a positive. It can be wielded as a negative. It, it, no matter you can you can essentially ascribe it the qualities negative or positive that you want to ascribe it. And oh, you know Bruce tried to chef it up with the goulash, whereas oh the noble Chris didn't didn't try to chef it up. He he just went out there with fried chicken that's been in his family's. Uh, sort of repertoire for for seven generations. Did the biscuits, which by the way, that 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 lovely kind of and he, would he glaze it with a little sugar? Mm-hmm. Oh, that that was very nice. But uh, I'm somebody who tends to like chefs being chefs. I like a little chefiness. I'm, I mean, I I want to, you know, I want to go to the circus. I want to see everything. And you know, when I go to a place, not that I don't like rustic cooking. The irony is, is I don't think of Bruce as being an overly chefy chef. I mean, we, right. you, you and I went to Union, and we're gonna. I'm, I'm very excited that in, in one of the coming weeks we are gonna have our kind of live conversation from the table at Union, where we had a, a splendid meal. Um, but but I didn't find that to be overly chefy. I felt like he's kind of a more rustic cook. Not at all. And so I thought that was a real departure for Bruce, and I think he knew it. Like I think he knew that he was kind of extending, uh, you know, overextending himself with that with that dish. But you know, the thing. The thing about this competition is when you nail the basics and he just nailed Chris, when he just nailed every single element on that dish and yeah, it might be low hanging fruit with, you know, uh, fried chicken, but he nailed it and it looked juicy. It looked very crispy, the spice, the heat. And when you are able to have the fried chicken, nail that and do a biscuit, that is some serious flexing, right? A perfectly cooked biscuit with all the fried chicken and with the collards and the whole just theme of I'm playing up to my heritage. That might've been like the quintessential top chef dish right there. Just the full package. Yeah. It looked great. I mean, it's funny how the show kind of this particular episode, I do, I do think, had so many object lessons. And, and going back to Joe Flam, who I, I'm still very bullish on, and I think, if anything, he may have learned a good lesson. I mean, you could see it from the outset, and I thought it was very apt that his dish was served with Tanya's because you had these two very talented chefs. One of them base, basically didn't ask the imperative question, which you have to ask on Top Chef, which is, is there enough time to prepare and plate 20 <laughs> servings of X? And yep. if the answer is probably no, you don't do it. Save the pasta, which you know you're going to unleash at a certain point. Save that for the six-person seating. But like – and it's kind of brilliant because Tanya had the opposite and very constructive instinct, which was, oh, there's 20 people to serve here. Guess what? It's time for a one-pot meal. I'm going to make gumbo, yeah. which is as easy to make by and large for the most part for 20 people as it is for eight people. And it was sort of a contrast in judgment. It's like Joe is every bit, you know, the chef Tanya is and vice versa. But one kind of I I think you have to be able to. And and Tyler said this on his kind of farewell thing, which is you have to think like top chef. And so often I think what we're learning is that there's so many strategic defects in the thinking of chefs like that is not the week to do your homemade pasta. I mean, and, and but that is exactly the week. To do your gumbo, which is a one-pot meal. You know what I learned this week? What? What pig's trotters were. Yeah, little, little feet, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. I was like, is that feet? Is that pig's feet? Yeah. So Adrian busted out the pig, the stuffed pig's uh, feet with collards, and it was it looked great. I think she's she's one of those, like, right outside the, the championship contender pile, and she is just lurking. I think she is – she's been really strong lately. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I actually – I think if we go back, like she ended up on that chopping block because of a, a lousy team and basically yes. getting assigned with somebody who didn't know how to cure fish. 
um, or, or sorry, cold smoke fish. So I, I think you start if you start kind of looking into the anatomy of what we've seen in the first eight meals, essentially eight challenges, four episodes. Adrian's been near top or close to top and rarely in in the bottom half of the division. So uh, let's briefly touch on the the quick fire. OK, this this was um, one of the more annoying quick fires. I know you have to kind of. I feel like this is a, a, a staple of every season is like the kids make a elevate a kid's dish. Right. But can you do like a small chopping block and not the whole entire kitchen is small things, small tools, like kid sized, you know? Yeah. I, I'm I, again, I, I, I was it Oliver Wendell Holmes or one of those old crusty HL Minken type people, justices, journalists who said children and dogs like, like there's this, it's kind of easy, low hanging fruit for people. Like everybody finds dogs and kids cute. I don't, I don't care. Hey, Hey, watch it. I love dogs. I do love dogs. Kids, I I, I could take or leave. But um, yeah, I mean, I look, I, I do think there's something to be said for kind of ele- like I think the better version of this is what they did with the college kids, which is kind of take hangover food and elevate it. Like yes. I do like the elevation of the basic. I do think that in and of itself is a really fun exercise. But I don't like yeah, this I just didn't find. It. And again, I don't give a crap about what 11 year olds like or don't like. I don't want to eat with them and I don't particularly <laughs> want to watch them on television. Uh, I will say this. Um, Fatima is uh, – I, I do love a deconstructed Caesar salad. As you know, that was my favorite of the Michelle Bernstein's uh, dishes, yes. her deconstructed Caesar salad at at, uh, at Senora Martinez. And uh, she uh, – so Fatima comes out with a – instead of, the, uh, instead of the, the crouton was a grilled cheese rather than a one-eyed jack. She pulled off an amazing move. She put anchovies and Brussels sprouts in a ch- children's dish, and they liked it. Yeah. You know what? Give it up for the kids. What am I saying? Score one for the kids. But that was an amazing dish. And again, when you when you can mix anchovies and Brussels sprouts, feed it to a kid and they love it and they eat it up and salad. Think about how hard that is. Um, that was impressive. Well, I have a couple other notes. Um, I, I have a couple other notes. I think. Oh, one, one thing I did notice is have you noticed it on Top Chef? Every time they cut to a couple of diners at one of those little food events or in a restaurant, it's always two gay guys. <laughs> And they're always really nice, and, and, and they acquit our community well. Thank you very much. But it, it is just – I feel like it's got to be an inside joke of the editing team on Top Chef, which is whenever they go to, oh, yeah, and the chicken's really fantastic. Like it's always a couple of gay guys, um, which oh, makes sense great. because it's Bravo and you know it's like the – it's Bravo's like ESPN for gay guys. This is what I've learned. Kevin, here's, here's my question though. Um, I know you're gay, but Gail Simmons – do you, I mean, is this the play? I was going to ask. I was going to ask Richard about Gail, because. But I, I guess we can do this now. Like, like, I have such a gay male's crush on a gay man's crush on Gail Simmons. Like, like, <laughs> I, I, I've always felt that if I had an older sister, I would have been far better adjusted for life. And when I imagine my stream older sister, it was Gail Simmons. Wow! Like, like cool literary magazine girl. Like, I love. I wanted more flavor. I wanted more coziness. Like I want, I, I want one of our listeners to come up with some gifs of Gail Simmons at the judges' table. I, I just, I kind of feel like Gail Simmons is one of those people that if I had her approval, I could do anything. I could be the great American novelist. Right. You would just want to please her. I could slam dunk a basketball. I could do whatever I wanted to do in life if I had Gail Simmons in my corner. Like I just, do I think that she would be like an apt host of this show? I don't know. I just. 
I just know that Gail Simmons is, I, I want to dine with Gail Simmons. I know she is a magnanimous, generous soul, and I love everything about Gail Simmons and the whole, all her presentation, the nice Canadian girl. I, I, I just, I'm so into it. And I just, more Gail Simmons, please. And if they, if they can do a spinoff, all the better. But I just, this is the, she's the big sister I never had and always wanted. Oh, that's so sweet. That was a really good love letter. I, I'm, I'm curious what Richard's um, experiences with Gail are, because it seems like she's just the perfect big sister. Yeah. She's just like who I want to be co-editors of the literary magazine in high school with. I wanted more flavor. Wanted more coziness. <laughs> I wanted some coziness and the dish was just cold. Oh, I love it. And like she also dispenses praise in the most gracious way. It's just like I like whenever a Gail Simmons is at the judge's table, like praising a chef, I'm not, I can I'm melting inside the chef's heart for them. It's just wonderful. Uh, Tom, shall we call Richard Blaze? Yeah, let's bring him on. Kevin, lucky you. You live in L.A., so you get to enjoy the wonders of the Caviar app. Caviar delivers food from the city's best restaurants in the comfort of your home or office, enabled by technology. Browse a picture menu, customize your meal, and get delivery straight to your door. Very excited about this. Caviar makes it easy for customers to enjoy food from the best restaurants in an instant. Once an order is placed, the customer can track their order with a real-time GPS. Caviar currently serves American cities with big foodie footprints like L.A., New York, Portland, and Chicago, and I cannot wait for it to hit my city here in Charlotte. Here's a goodie for Pack Your Knives listeners. Go to leveragethechat.com backslash caviar. That's C-A-V-I-A-R. Check to see if your city is on the exclusive list and get free delivery for those who sign up using that link. Again, that's leveragethechat.com backslash caviar. Enjoy. Tom, I think we have Richard Blaze on the line. Man, this is my number one overall pick for guests on the show. Richard Blaze, season eight, Top Chef All Stars winner. Oh my, Mister Number Richard One Blaze. Pick. Yeah, um, a lot of a lot of pressure with being a number one pick. So I don't know if I want the. I don't do really well under pressure. So I don't know if I want that responsibility. Richard, do you know how many chefs have uh, Instagram stories of them doing the God Sham God dribble? Not very many. This is perfect. <laughs> Wait, wait, such a thing that exists? Is, Kevin. I, 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 I will have to cue it back up. We'll have to get okay. it back in the rotation. Uh, I've, been, I've been working on my sham god a little bit. This, this is true. This is a true thing. <laughs> uh, Kevin, give him a good intro, and then let's get into this, uh, this, this Q&A with, <clears throat> with Richard Blaze, who is awesome, oh. awesome NBA fan, I guess, and also a great Top Chef figure. No, I mean, so... I mean, Richard is a podcast host of uh, Starving for Attention. He is uh, the proprietor and, and founder and, and executive chef of, of, of many restaurants. Um, Richard, thank you for joining us. You're also a big NBA fan as well. I, I love basketball. I mean, I, the, the NBA probably a little bit more on the college game, but um, certainly uh, I'm, I'm coaching for the first time this year. I'm coaching my six-year-old uh, girls team. So this is a big, big moment for me. We, we've been running drills all morning. Um, and <laughs> what she, she, she do a six-year-old? 
<laughs> Which drills are those? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's basically just just dribbling full court and backpedaling the whole court and just doing it again, a, a la sort of uh, you know the miracle style, just blowing the whistle again, again. Even at six years old, we got We got to get it moving quick. When are you going to put in like the high screen and roll, spread the floor kind of offense? We we did we 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 talked screens and pick and rolls even at six today. So we'll see what what type of uh, retention we had tomorrow when we get out on the on the court in the morning. That's cool. You um you're also what we did find very recently. You have pledged your affinity for one of the best new trends in the NBA, which is an old trend, which are not only the short shorts but 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 the fades, which have come back in force. The the fade. Well, I you know I I think that's the cool thing when you get to a certain age. I'm realizing uh, I'm I'm realizing that now. Are we really talking about hairstyles here, correct or no? Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, this is this was sort of my era. So I was at the store yesterday. Whether it's fashion or TV or movies, I mean, anything that was cool, you know, 25 years ago, seems to be making a, a big comeback. So I do like the slightly shorter shorts. I mean, we can't go like Rolando Blackman style, but we we can go a little a little a little shorter for sure. No, I, I credit Kent Bazemore for this. I mean, I think he was the first guy a few years ago to really embrace the short shorts. I mean, the fades. I mean, between Devin Booker, between I mean, Giannis yesterday, I was I was noticing like there's everybody now basically. Well, the, the Booker's fade is super sweet. Man, dare I say that it's butter? Like when I was a kid, we used to say that fade. If it was really good, it was a butter fade. So I, that, that probably the, the the term butter probably hasn't come back yet. But we can start it here, right on this podcast. Yeah, no, you're, you're you're totally right about the age. I think you and I are, are probably of the same age, and just watching 1989 kind of reappear as a cultural barometer in terms of aesthetics has been one of the more affirming things of middle age. I'm convinced but, that the Charlotte Hornets should just go full retro and go back to the Muggsy Bogues uniforms, Glenn Rice, Ronnie Cycli uniforms. Just go, just go full full bore. But they they kind of have not. They've are almost pen, gotten are there. Are we talking pinstripes? Yeah, the pinstripes. The Alexander the, Julian, the yeah. Alexander Julian design jersey. Yeah, yeah, I'm rooting okay, for that. Yeah, they should just go full fun. '90s, full '90s Hornets. Um, Grandma Ma, like that whole era of Hornets history is fantastic. That's where I'm based, uh, Richard. So I'm I'm rooting for that. Um, Richard, what's I, the most? I, I can I can get into that. Yeah, Richard, what's the most interesting food trend right now? And the most insufferable <laughs> one. You can you can do either one first. Wow. You know, I mean, I, I try, I'm not really great to be the sort of trend guy. I'm obsessed right now with uh, Omu rice. If you've been following me on Instagram at Richard Blaze, it's this um, Japanese omelet, the over fried rice that gets you, you make it. It's this, just this amazing technical three egg omelet that you then carve into, which is a weird thing to say with an omelet. And then it oozes its inside all over this fried rice. And then you pour some uh, veal red wine demi-glace over the top of it. And I guess it's from an era of Japanese cuisine where like Western culture and like French technique was first being introduced. So, so do a little search on hashtag OMU rice. That's sort of been my trend and I, I'm kind of a trendsetter. Maybe, maybe, maybe we can get that going as a super uh, popular trend. Oh, I think I donuts, donuts, donuts are, are an obvious sort of like everyone's doing donuts right now. Um, and you know, there's nothing to complain about when it comes to sort of a donut craze or trend. It's cool. Now, Oberweiss, I'm looking at this. This is pretty amazing. This is not tamago though. This is not like the traditional sushi omelet that I always see. No, right. So a lot of people hear that and they think it's the sushi omelet. No, this is more of a traditional French omelet. That's just, you know, golden and silky. And then 
if you're watching any of those videos, they slice into that omelet and then it just sort of oozes over this rice. I've made four or five in the last 24 hours here trying to sort of perfect my technique. I'm not sure why, by the way. Okay, so what do I need? Because I, uh, you know, I, I just moved into a new place. Um, some some from notable chefs urged me to get a steam oven, and I've been nothing but pleased with it, and all the stuff I can yeah. do. Now, what do I what do I need for the omu rice? The good thing is I'm a little I'm um, surprisingly a lot. Uh, it's more low tech. You just need a, a good pan. I, you know, a nonstick pan is going to be fine. Uh, you need three eggs, a splash of milk, some salt and pepper. That's really all you need to sort of start working on the technique. Go get some leftover fried rice. That's the easy way. Uh, and then, uh, you know, of course, you, if you want to get traditional, you can make that sort of veal sauce. But uh, I don't mind just sort of uh, mixing some ketchup and A1 together, which is an, it's incredible that I'm revealing that to you guys. But uh, I, I keep it pretty simple when we're, when we're, at, when we're at home. No, any, any, by the way, any, the appropriation of A1 Heinz 57 or ketchup for anything is, is, a, is a culinary achievement and unto itself. And, and it, we should not it, be in It is a clutch that. thing. Oh, it's, it's a clutch. It's, it's an ingredient. You got you got to respect it for sure. Has someone totally. done like an A one dessert because it's such a sweet condiment and it's delicious? Like, is that something that people have done, like an A one ice cream or something like that? Oh, I mean, not. I hope I'm not offending you, but I hope not. I hope that that's not. Something <laughs> that, but maybe. <laughs> so, I mean, that that would that would have to be one if you if that ended up being your challenge on Top Chef and you had to use it or sort of chop that or something know, like that, but. Um, it is sweet. You're you're right about that. Maybe, maybe I can see it. Maybe you could work it into uh, some sort of chocolate dessert. And you could hide it. Um, like James Harden on on defense. That's right. It's like hide ingredients. There are ingredients you kind of have to hide on the floor, so to yes. speak. Yes. Yes. Hey, um, you Richard, you said early on when we started up this podcast that Top Chef is a sport. Can you explain what it is to be a Top Chef contestant and why you consider it a sport in of itself? Hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher-turned-podcast producer, and I'm here to talk to you about ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the most convenient way to get high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep, free shipping, vacuum-sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. ButcherBox takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at butcherbox.com dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Wow. I mean, so, I mean, Top Chef is a sport. I mean, listen, I played a bunch of sports as a kid uh, and not anything really, really well. But I was one of those kids who played, you know, three, four sports a year and really just you know, uh, you know, enjoyed even, you know, whether it was wiffle ball or, you know, playing 21 outside or something like that was always sort of playing sports. And, you know, that's what top chef is. There's a score, it's a competition, you know, someone wins, someone loses. Um, and there's a strategy within that. So, I mean, to me, it's an absolute sport, but the, the issue sort of becomes, you know, that really cooking is not necessarily a sport or cooking in a restaurant is not really a sport and you don't have these moments to really train for top chef until you're thrown out into the moment. And I've heard uh, you talk about other competitors who have, have told you that, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a totally different thing. It's, it's not like cooking in a restaurant. Um, and it's not, it's, it's more of a sport. So I think if you had any sort of experience uh, in, in the, in the sporting world, if you will, that's going to serve anyone who's competing on, on top chef. Right. I mean, it, it, it was, it's a question I'm sort of asking everybody, which is, this idea that if you if you brought this if you put the 16 best chefs in the world uh, or not even like if you if you put the 16 best chefs in the world in a top chef season, the best chef might not necessarily win to the extent that these things are objective and subjective. Obviously, that's that's a that's a problem in and of itself. But but you, the best chef doesn't necessarily win top chef. I mean, I think someone even joked, oh, Tom, Thomas Keller would get his ass kicked at top chef. That it's just a completely different skill apart from what you're talking about. A hundred percent. I mean, the first thing obviously is the clock, you know, so I think, you know, the clock you see in most sports and that sort of, you know, is the first thing that you don't necessarily see in a kitchen. You could of course make the argument that a restaurant kitchen has, you know, till 5 PM every day to get ready for service. And, uh, but that's a really, really sort of, that's a, a, the cricket of the chef competition yes. world, if you will. It's a really, really long form. You know, it's, it's improv, you know, I mean, whether if I'm speaking to musicians or artists or comedians, you know, Top Chef is much more of an improv sort of thing. Most restaurants are going through prototypes and really collaborating. And uh, there's sort of a lonely warrior aspect to uh, a lot of these cooking shows, Top Chef, of course, as well. What is the to-do list when you're going on to Top Chef? Are there certain dishes that you have to dream up where you're like, all right, I have to make sure I'm going to nail this because I'm definitely going to have this assignment in 15 minutes. I got to create a great dish. Do you like go into Top Chef with a sort of, not a scouting report, but a list of items or dishes that you have to nail that you know is going to do well on the show? See, I love the way that you talk about Top Chef because it's the way I've always thought about it. And even, you know, of course, having been a part of so many iterations of it at this point. Um, yeah. So, like, if I'm going in as a competitor, certainly, you know, I was uh, fortunate enough to have an all-star season. And, you know, even that first season, you are going in sort of with a little moleskin notebook of notes of, 
um, things that you might do. It certainly helps to have some baking recipes memorized, a couple of desserts, which always seems to sink someone in the competition. Um, I mean, to me, and it's, I've always wanted to sort of start a camp or sort of a Gruden's quarterback camp. Uh, <laughs> if you want to help me get that going for next season, yes. I'd love to do that because there there is training involved. But I'm shocked when a contestant doesn't know what a pressure cooker does or looks at a nitrogen tank and is just baffled. They're there every single season. If you watch the show like an athlete or like a coach and actually, you know, you know, freeze frame some stills, you can get a pretty good understanding of everything that's in that kitchen. Uh, I mean, honestly, I'm going to sound like a total dork, but I'm running, you know, 40 yard sprints in the Whole Foods with a half loaded shopping cart because, you know, there's an absolute <laughs> physicality to it. <laughs> this is true, by the way. No. Um, and how fast you can get off the block. I'm, I'm absolutely 100% dead serious. Um, you know, if you're the first person to that protein counter, uh, it's a bobsled race. You're pushing that cart. You got to get there. And um, and if not, if you're not that fast, then you have to have the sort of mental agility to strategize. No, I'm going to actually go against the grain and everyone else is going to run for protein. I'm going to go grab some produce. Um, so there's just so much. I mean, even just sort of memorizing what a Whole Foods looks like or whatever shopping market they're in for each season. Um, all of those things come into play. And I'm, I'm kind of shocked that a lot of people who get a chance to compete, you know, aren't sort of putting together these sort of like you call them scouting reports or dossiers on, on what might happen, you know? Um, sorry, I'm getting really excited. I'm getting worked up. We got to start that, uh, that, 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 that chef. Green camp. Up. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. What, what are some yeah. of the most biggest strategic pitfalls, like errors that when you're watching you're like, Oh, of course, no, that's the absolute wrong decision to make or wrong planning decision. Or I, I mean, for instance, there was, there was a contestant this, this week who's, who's clearly a good chef who decided to make the homemade pasta on a 20 person dinner rather than kind of saving it for a six person dinner. And it's like, I felt like I saw it from a mile away uh, and he realized that yeah. only when it was too late. Like, like what are some of the big strategic pitfalls that just burn people year in and year out? Uh, I mean, listen, that's, that's one sort of, um, you know, the, the type of chefs, you know, that come in and they have the, you know, I'm from scratch, everything. I would never, you know, even buy store-bought pasta as an example. Um, you know, that's just a mentality thing. You know, you have to realize really quick that it's, you know, it's not a restaurant environment and, um, you know, certain, you know, certain laws that you might have in your own kitchen are not going to apply. I think generally, and I think this came out in the first episode, I think you guys were touching on it in, in your first episode, the, the idea of like playing it safe is pretty controversial, but the strategy of Top Chef is really to not lose each episode. It's, it's not, it's not really to win until the last episode of the game. And, you know, if Tom Colicchio was on here, he would, he would argue against that, but he's never competed. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's really to not lose. So you hear a lot of competitors. I don't want to do a dish that I've done before. Do a dish that you've done before. Why would you, why would you save, you know, something that you've never done before, uh, you know, in such an important moment. So I think a lot of people, you know, they want to impress, you know, I, I fell, you know, victim to this, you know, in my first run a couple of times, they want to impress, they get sort of suckered into this, like, Oh, it's just fun. I'm hanging out with my friends. You're not you're competing for your career. And if you do a dish and you do it really well in your restaurant back home or, you, or at your house or whatever it is, you know, do that dish. You know, I mean, I think people would get on me because I would do a dish twice. I don't care. It's a different set of diners. You do the same dish in a restaurant every single night and no one comes in on Thursday and gets mad because you serve that dish on Wednesday. Uh, so play within your sort of uh, your wheelhouse, if that makes sense. You know, to, uh, Richard, looking down from 30,000 feet over the last 15 years, what has the show done for just chef culture in North America? 
Well, I mean, I think it's inspired, you know, uh, tons of cooks. So I think that helps. I think it's, you know, so for the cooks, I think it's inspired a ton of young cooks. That, is that you know, quantifiable? Day, like, is the, the enrollment at Institute, like the Culinary Institute, is that is that up in recent years? You know, I can't. I don't. I don't have the the numbers on that, but I I, I think it's it's made it. You know, because it's a sport, I think it's made it a little bit more dynamic. It's it's probably got a few more people engaged um, that wouldn't have been. I think in this sort of, you know, me first social media, everyone's a brand. Uh, it's given sort of a lot of uh, you know younger cooks or people just starting out in their career the opportunity to sort of shine and you know uh, be bypassing a few steps or a few rungs on that ladder to success. Um, and and for the for the guests, just for the general public, I mean it's it's. It's made them more knowledgeable about food, and I think it's it's driven them, you know, drives them to restaurants. It gets them to, you know, maybe buy a different, you know, uh, piece of produce at the market or, or or try something different at home. So I, I think in general, it's just really really inspiring, uh, in, in in each and every way. You hear it every time, every season. There's uh, at the end they say, you know, the winner or someone gets eliminated at the very end, and they say, you know, even though I'm out. I feel like I learned something about myself as a chef. Did you learn anything about yourself going in? You were this chef and coming out, you were a different chef or is that just a bunch of foo foo um, hallmark shit? Yeah. It's a, listen, it's a great soundbite. Um, in this case, it ends up, I think being, you know, a hundred percent accurate probably for, you know, everyone who's got, you know, uh, who, who says that. So, I mean, I do think like for me, it's, it's that ability as a chef to sort of receive criticism. Um, and so many chefs compete on this show and so many get humbled. I mean, even the winners, you know, I mean, it, it, no, no one's made a clean run, you know, the whole table, the whole way through. Um, so there's always humbling moments. You're getting this criticism in front of millions of people. Like, you know, pride is such a big thing. I mean, really in, in anything that's competitive, but in the chef world, I feel like there's just so much pride and motivation for people who cook all day long. And they usually do it behind the scenes. Uh, that's why you see so many people cry. I'm always upset when, uh, you know, the average fan is like, why are they crying? They, they made it, you know, almost to the end. And now they're crying it's because like, it means like the world to, to, to these chefs who are competing. Uh, and literally when you get, you know, when you do have to pack your knives, like your, your soul is just being, you know, pulled out of, you know, in front of, you know, 4 million people, you just feel like the biggest loser in the world because like you care so much about your craft. Um, so yeah, I think it is, it's humbling. And I think everyone who goes through it comes out a better chef. I think even more than that, I think the people that go through it come out better people because, you know, then all of a sudden you have a popularity, you have a little bit of a following and now you have a responsibility, um, you know, to sort of make sure that, you know, the people that are coming up behind you, uh, understand the sort of, uh, the gravity of, of, of their role, uh, in, in, in the food world. Um, it's not unique sorry, to top. Sorry to go on a tangent there. Oh, sorry to go serious. Yeah, we are this. We we are all about the tangents. Uh, speaking of which, so it, it's not a specific thing to Top Chef, but because it it happens in other reality shows. But it's got to be pretty miserable living with like fourteen other people in that intense of an environment. It is. Uh, yeah, it's, it can it can get pretty miserable. I think that's a part of the show that I would love for them just as a fanboy. I would love for them to sort of showcase a little bit more. There's, you know, you get a couple shots of, uh, you know, it's here's, uh, you know, at the house or someone making breakfast, but rarely do you sort of get a chance to dive in, you know, they film all of that stuff. So like the footage is there. Um, but just with editing, you can't really get into it. I always thought they should sort of big brother a camera, at least in just the kitchen of, you know, the cast house, 
um, because there's, you know, you have to, you, there's a social part of the game as well. And some people, you know, can't yes. do it. You know, for me, you know, I'm a competitor. I have a family and kids and all of a sudden I'm sleeping in a bunk bed with seven dudes, you know, and it's like, you know, 15 years since I've been in college, uh, you know, that takes some time to get used to. And, and you're literally, you know, it's a diverse house. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're not used to living with, you know, 12, 15 other people, um, that's a, that's a, a strain and a, and, a, and a drain on you emotionally and mentally, but they should cover it more. They should cover it. Yeah. I made the analogy that Top Chef is like baseball, where it's an individual sport masquerading as a team sport, right? It's there is some team aspect to Top Chef, right? Like that to the social aspect that you mentioned just now. I feel like you do have to create not hard alliances, but it does help to have people like you generally, right? A hundred percent. Right. So, I mean, again, going back to like, how do you prepare for top chef? Well, cooking is a team sport. If you're a professional chef in a restaurant, you know, whatever it is, it's five, 10, 20, 50 people a day going at it and everyone helping each other out. Um, and everyone sort of is going in to the competition with that mentality. Um, so you do, I mean, it's, you know, it's not, you know, survivor, whether, you know, you're not trying to, you know, trick someone. So, you know, you can make a play later in the game, but you certainly want to be a good person or friendly or helpful because you might need some help down the road. And uh, I think uh, in that first episode of this season, you know, Bruce needed some help and yes. uh, I forget who the, the contestant came over to help him Two came over to help him wrap and you know that was a great play on both parts because here's a guy who's going to help anyone whenever they need it and here's another guy who you know we don't get to see that but obviously there's a respect for bruce uh, that you know other people will just jump in and help him out and we're all used to being the boss so it's it's it is kind of a, a social game of who who can be sort of like the chef amongst chefs socially you know in those moments and who's gonna you know be a, just a really good person so that other people will jump in and help them uh you know you don't really see you know even thoughts of sabotage until you know later down the game and and, and quite honestly you never see any i don't think like a serious sort of sabotage uh so in the latest episode i know you haven't watched it yet but yeah, there were kids involved in. there were kids involved okay awesome. so you had in in season eight the all-stars in the episode two you had the night at the museum i'm sure you remember that one right I do because I got to sleep at the American History Museum. So like, how do you forget, forget that night? <laughs> so you got you had to prepare dishes for kids, and Kevin and I just talked about it earlier. That's got to be so humbling. Is the having to serve and hear uh, critiques from ten year olds who are snacking on fruity pebbles? Um, you know, listen. You, you talked earlier about you know the the sort of what happens to you as a chef from going on the show. The yeah. same. Listen, uh, it, we don't as a parent. That happens to you as well when you become a parent and your, your kid, your kid throws some asparagus at you or, you know, you know, says something isn't tasty or undelicious. So like having that, you know, any challenge that sort of involves kids, that's real tricky, of course, for the competitors that might not have kids or don't cook for kids. Um, but, you know, listen, they, they know what tastes good. Like, so that's the challenge with kids is, um, you know, they could care less about the history of France or what a gastrique is or whatever is going on in your mind, all they really know is like, is this delicious? Um, mm. And so it's an actually pretty good benchmark of, of a chef to be able to, you know, to cook for kids and, you know, to, you know, do be able to play within that sort of uh, framework of just, Hey, it just has to be delicious. That's really all they care about. Um, somebody whose opinion I, I totally care about, and I have sort of a gay man's uh, crush on her. And we were talking about her in the previous segment. Is, is Gail Simmons? I just I don't know Gail Simmons, but I love Gail Simmons. T tell me about Gail Simmons. Tell me about my crush. 
Um, well, listen, I think that I, I, many people have had this crush, um, uh, you know, myself included, most uh, perhaps. Okay, yeah, I have. Um, and, uh, you know, she's, uh, I mean, what, what is it to say about it? I mean, she, you got to get her on the podcast. She's an amazing person, oh. one of my favorite people. As a judge, I actually, oddly enough, um, never really uh, get Gail Simmons to buy into the Richard Blaze game. Uh, so it's really interesting as a, as a judge and a friend, uh, you know, we're cool and she's great. And I love wait, she, wait, she and, like your uh, food as when she was a, on the other side of the table. I never felt like, I mean, even when I won in all stars, you know, um, you know, at that last episode that she was not, you know, I think a matter of fact, you'd have to get her to, 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 you know, sort of, uh, say if this is true or not, but I'm, I'm pretty sure she was one of the people who were like, no, I don't think he won this challenge. Um, so she was sort of playing the other side there. Um, but yeah, but I mean, not just in that last challenge, she was always for me, a tougher, uh, critic to sort of crack. And that, that's another part of the game is sort of, you know, uh, you got to go back and watch, you know, enough top chef. Like if you just watch it as a viewer, you kind of know what Tom likes. You kind of know, yeah. you know, you, you, you know what Gail likes. Um, so I, I never could really figure out, you know, the mystery of Gail Simmons as a judge, you do. Uh, but she is, she is amazing. And she was also intimidating uh, to me. Really? She, I just, she has no affectations and I find that really appealing in, in a human being. But, um, oh, this is an interesting question. So how much when you guys are back there in the, in the, cha- in the judges chambers, um, and we obviously see only a small sliver of the conversation are there is how, how often is the opinion so varied? Is there great variance? If the four of you guys are trying to figure out who's on top, who's on bottom, or even, you know, among the, the, the chopping block and who wins is there often. And is there, is there unanimity a lot or is there real contentiousness? Uh, I guess, listen, I mean, in my, in my first run, I mean, we had a couple of Bobby Knight sort of episodes. I mean, we yeah. had some chair throwing and some shouting matches <laughs> yeah, and some, like, blue Pinella hat backwards <laughs> up in your face moments. <laughs> um, <laughs> it seems to have calmed down since, like, the early days of Top Chef. Um, but, you know, no one – because you don't – you know, I mean, there might be a challenge where you get to see and taste everyone else's food. But for the most part, you know, you only know what you did, and you don't really know what, what the other teams – did. You might know what one other team did if you were just located next to them. Um, but it's kind of really tough. I mean, you know, for me, I was always worried about going home. So I think at a certain point, my competitors would be like, no, that's just his game. He just, he just, you know, always analyzing every single mistake he made and he's probably going to be okay. Cause he does this all the time and then he's fine. Um, but you know, everyone's kind of sitting back there worried. Rarely is someone, you know, back there, you know, high-fiving and just thinking they crushed it. Um, one of the pitfalls of that room is if you're cooking in a public sort of, you know, event outside or you're cooking in a public scenario is never believe the hype of the guests who end up in front of your table and say, this is my favorite thing. These nachos are my favorite thing of the party. Oh. And then, you know, the, yeah, because like, they're just, you know, randos that are, you know, invited to a <laughs> show. And if the camera happens to be on, uh, rarely are going to are they going to try and knock you down? But usually there is one thing. If, if you're in, the, in that stew room and you're like, oh, well, everyone loved my food, that, that's, I would be careful before you get too excited about right. that because really at the end of the day, it's only the judges that, that really matter when it, in most challenges. All right, but let's do this. Give us the scouting report. What does Tom like? Give us the do's and don'ts. You want to cook and impress Tom Calicchio. Yeah, John Gruden. Like? Yeah, give us the scouting report on Tom and, uh, and Padma. 
Wow. Okay. Let's go. Let's uh, let's see. This is off the top of my head. Let's go. I, I'd have to write this up for the school because I'm going to charge people lots of money for this. So um, <laughs> don't don't judge me just from this one. Um, you know, listen. Tom is a traditionalist. I would go back and you know do a little research on Tom, Tom's sort of uh, you know rise to fame that he cooks at his restaurants and at craft. He's sort of French trained. He loves Italian food. Uh, you know, he's a, a less is more type of chef. Um, as a, as his judging partner, he's not the, it needs more acidity. It needs more salt guy. He just really wants to sort of play true to what that dish is supposed to be. Um, he's, you know, not the, you know, wow him with technique. He just wants simple food. Well, prepared. And, and he, He's a romantic. He, yeah, he, quite honestly, he, he's a romantic. Like he's he's backstage playing a guitar, talking about his garden, right? So like that's the type of guy that 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 Calicchio is, you know, behind the scenes. And he he doesn't want bullshit. He doesn't want molecular gastronomy. And and you know, and if you're doing molecular, it just has to be delicious and it has to come from a place of some authentic sort of inspiration. So uh, that's my. It has to be well seasoned. We all know that. And it has to be you know. Be careful when you're playing like with real traditional dishes, especially ones that are in Mexican, whether it's risotto or, you know, you know, fish, you know, right from Montauk, you know, with some succotash or, you know, these, these sort of foods that, that Tom is probably at home cooking himself. Uh, Padma, is that good for Tom? That's need great. To yeah, that's on Tom? great. Fantastic. Uh, you know, for, for Padma, here's the thing. Padma's the queen bee, right? She, she is the only judge who's there all the time, right? So think about it. She's there in every quick fire. She's there in every elimination. She's the only judge that gets to do that. So she has an amazing sense of each competitor and her sort of judging is going to be almost a little harder as like your parent that coaches your little league team. Um, because, you know, she knows what you're capable of. She saw you cook that dish in that quick fire two challenges ago. So you're sort of playing on a bell curve a lot of times with Padma. Of course, if you're going to do any sort of food that's in the sort of Indian uh, lexicon, if you say something spicy, it has to be at a certain level of spice tolerance. You know, it has to be spicy. Um, she knows her food. She's a world traveler. Um, I mean, how many billionaires has she dated? I don't know. Probably a lot. Um, so she's eaten a lot of great meals. Um, and you know, it's, to her, it's, it is a little bit more, I think about big dynamic flavors, which is tough because I think you do need some spice and acidity and these sort of things, um, you know, to sort of, to, to win over, uh, Padma, but there's sort of like the, um, you know, the, the, the headmaster of the school sort of situation where she knows you so well, you're sort of playing on this curve against yourself sometimes, or so it seems as a competitor. To that right. end, what about is Fati, um, is Fatima, is she at a disadvantage or an advantage, uh, with Padma? Um, you know, I, again, like, I think, I think, you, you know, again, she's also, all of the judges, just to be clear, have this a tremendous amount of integrity. There's no shenanigans happening, but I think it's it is certainly tougher, right? If you're if you're going to cook, you know, sort of Italian American food for Colicchio, it's going to be a little tougher. If you're yep. going to cook, you know, the food of the of you know where where Padma's from, you're going to cook Indian food, Pakistani food. In this case, I get she knows that food. It's going to be a little tougher because she mm. really knows what she's talking about. If, if I show up on stage, if Wiley Dufresne shows up. Uh, if the Voltaggio brothers show up and you're going to do molecular gastronomy, like you got to, you know, kind of know what you're talking about. Um, so it's really just sort of understanding, you know, understanding the judges. Yeah, she could be at a disadvantage. Uh, what about Gail? And I, <laughs> Gail, well, that's the riddle I haven't cracked, right? So, um, you know, I, I, I do think that, like, I think you kind of mentioned it. Like, she sort of 
you know, I think Gail does a great job of sort of speaking for um, the people. I think this goes back to her sort of history as being a writer and, you know, having her relationship with Food and Wine magazine. So I think sort of Gail is, um, you know, at times, you know, making calculations that are not just, you know, for her, but like, hey, you know, is this something that I think everyone would like? Is this something that, you know, is worth people going to a restaurant that serve this? So I think her her, her sort of, uh, you know, her vantage point is a little bit different. Uh, it's, it might not be as personal as the other two chefs, um, but it, it, it perhaps is more important because she's sort of speaking for, um, you know, groups of people that know great food. She is the Chicago Bulls and you're the Utah Jazz. I, I, I'm trying to follow that one. Man, I, I feel bad that I, I can't. I can't well, just, that you're, one you're, you're Carl um, Malone and John Stockton and you're trying to figure out how are we going to beat – how am I going to take down the Chicago Bulls? And you haven't figured out how you're going to do it. So Gail Simmons is the Chicago yeah. Bulls in that sense where you're just like, man, yeah, we got to go against this and, team again. And it's and you know and, and if you're going to go that way, I mean, you know, Gail Simmons is Rothman. Like it's you know it's that's the that's the that's the piece of the puzzle you got to kind of figure out. You don't you don't you underestimate Rodman, and then what happens? That is the first time that anyone has ever likened Gail Simmons to Dennis Rodman. I love this, and probably the last, probably the last. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanna I wanna ask you about Atlanta because I grew up. I, I, w- I was born and raised right by Chastain Park, and I'm always curious people who kind of make it there their adult home who transplant from the Northeast. And I mean, obviously the, it's nowhere like the place I grew up. I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those insane sunbelt exploding megapolises now that I don't even recognize at times. Um, I mean, give me, what's the sky? I mean, how, I mean, how do you see the food scene there? Where, where is Atlanta and the constellation of culinary America? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, again, in to, to preface, I've been living out in Southern California for the last, Five years, but you know, certainly spent a good amount oh. of my time in Atlanta. Um, Who knew? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Founded, founded Flip Burger, even though I'm not, you know, uh, involved operation, operationally anymore. But I certainly can speak to the fact that, you know, Atlanta is just one of these cities that is totally still underrated. Um, it just pound for pound, you know, really can compete with with you know almost any city. I mean, of course, you can't, you know, only New York can be New York and. San Francisco and Chicago, you know, that that's a tough sort of trio of cities to sort of break into. Um, but it's one of those cities that I think you're, you'd be surprised how many great restaurants are there or how many restaurants are, are in Atlanta that, you know, could be also a good restaurant in any of those uh, bigger market cities. Yeah, I, I've had so much fun going home and eating. I mean, just the last 10 years of just knocking places out one at a time and, and not just and I still have my old favorites like the Busy Bee. Um, but like just the concentration of, I, I think, I think Miller Union is just one of my favorite, just kind of neighborhood restaurants in the country. Right sure. Now. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, well, yeah, exactly. One of the best in the country. And I, you know, I love that a place like homegrown can exist where it exists and serve what it does. Um, I, I, I love gun show. I, I, the optimist for years has been, a place I love. I, I love like brunch at one eared stag. Like I got, there's just, there's no, I love that the octopus bar lasted over a decade where you could actually get something like that at one 30 in the morning in Atlanta, Georgia on a Thursday night. Um, it, it's just, uh, it's, it's just been such a fun place to eat the last 10 years. Cause there wasn't a hell of a lot when I was growing up. Um, like some interesting Asian cuisine had hit Chambly and Doraville along Buford highway. It was the first time I'd ever seen dim sum, was at a place called Hanto's in 1990, but like it was still, I think, kind of a culinary backwater, and it's just been really fun. 
I think, yeah, I think that's a great assessment and rundown. I mean, it's a major city. And I, I think every time the, you know, the James Beard awards roll around, it's, it's not surprising to see so many uh, Atlanta chefs and restaurants, you know, nominated for, for different categories. Hey, where are you eating in Los Angeles these days? Wow. You know, we record our podcast starving for attention in LA. So we're there pretty frequently. I mean, uh, I mean, I, of course I love anything that my friends, John and Vinny are doing. So, um, that's probably been my, uh, most recent sort of, uh, I'm a regular there just because we record the podcast so close. Uh, Jeremy Fox and Rustic Canyon is another, oh, uh, you know, great, great, the, by great the way, the best neighborhood restaurant in America. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I mean, of course, you know, with Vespertine and Dialogue, these are some, you know, more modern restaurants that are just blowing up the scene. I, I think it's there's a there's an easy argument to be made that L.A. is the best food city currently, meaning that it's it's opening up more restaurants with more regularity um, that are achieving big things than, than probably most other cities, even New York, which um, is probably is pretty shocking statement. But I think it's true. OK, two questions and and, and I won't stop monopolizing it, but um <clears throat> Do I need to do Vespertine? You know, I have not dined there, so I can't say firsthand, but I would say yes, because I know Jordan Khan and he's just, and he's, you know, there are some chefs who, you know, are mostly a chef and a little bit of an artist. Um, and like Jordan is a lot of a chef and a lot of an artist, right? I mean, you're really, you're going to get something, I, obviously from reading the reviews and just knowing Jordan, you know, you're going to get something otherworldly. And I think for the experience of it, I think you got to give it a shot. Okay. Um, and I, and I just, yeah, there was a time, I, I mean, not to, to wax too much about Jordan, but you know, I, I spend a lot of my time like doing live shows. I do 50 to 75, like live performances a year, which is something we can get into at some point on another podcast. I saw Jordan do like a live presentation once for like an hour and he didn't even talk. He just played some music and like cooked and it was just breathtaking. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's just a stellar sort of talent. Um, you and, know what's and, funny? and it's amazing dude. So you got to try it out. I would pay a ticket to that. It's, it's, it's the ordeal of getting the table and everything else and, and just the hoops sometimes that I, I get frustrated with, as I did with Maude. Um, but the second question sure, I had for sure. you is the vodka sauce at John and Vinny's. If I want to even recreate a fraction of that wonderfulness, the oh, vodka sauce. Wow. Um, I mean, to, to me, I, mean, I don't know their recipe. But I'm sorry? I don't know what their recipe Like, I don't think I've ever had the vodka sauce there. Is it just, it's that memorable, huh? Yeah, like I've had good experiences at John and Vinny's. I mean, it's 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 obviously a, a crowd pleaser in our world, but like, like, but the far and away the best thing on the table. That table and any table I must have eaten at within a six months either way was their vodka sauce. And Amazing. Yeah, listen, I'm I'm a Long Island boy, so like, uh, you know, got to do like Long Island wedding mm -hmm. style, just some marinara mm -hmm. with a splash of heavy cream, and that's vodka sauce. There you, there go. you go. Right. <laughs> hey. Um, Richard, there is a question posed from a, a fan of Pack Your Knives at Five Field Zero Nine. Says, curious to hear Richard Blaze's thoughts on what it would take to get all previous winners back for a season if it's prize money. Could get a Pack Your Knives Kickstarter going, and he responded, "It's a complicated question, but the answer isn't prize money. Dot 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 entirely. Dot dot dot. What is the end of that? Dot dot dot." Well, you know, one, it's something that I mean, even when I, I remember when, when I won all stars, I was so pumped up and I was like, let's go, let's do, you know, let's do it again. And, um, you know, it, I think one, it would be really tough to wrangle all of these people because they've already gone through it. And a lot of them, you know, I've won and lost. So it'd be a little easier for me. I'm not saying that I would commit to it, but for a lot of people like, you know, they won. So like the chances are that you're going to win again is pretty slim. 
in a Champions League sort of situation. Um, so I think it would be tough to just convince people to compete. And then, you know, uh, just to be honest, like there, there is there is a, you know, sort of, and I don't want to say pay to play because it makes it seem sort of, uh, you know, uh, like, <laughs> like that, that's all that matters. Um, but, you know, I, another thing to think about is like, you know, only one person, you know, at the end of a season is walking away with any money. There might be some challenges where there's some prize money, but everyone's really just playing for exposure. Um, you know, I mean, quite honestly, you know, you have to even measure prize money versus the amount of time that you're away from your businesses or your family. Um, so I I think some of it is financial and some of it, you know, maybe it's not just a big prize for the winner, but maybe, you know, if there was some way to set it up so that the top four, five, six or something like that, or, you know, I mean, I I don't want to get into the financials of it, but I think that that's a big part of it because you'd have to convince people to step away from things right now that are, you know, uh, producing revenue for them uh, to take a shot at most likely losing um, again. And, uh, you know, how many of those people of the winners, I don't know how many there are now, 15, 16, whatever it is, how many of them, you know, really need um, exposure. A few of them probably do, um, but I think it would be just a tough group to wrangle. That being said, I probably would do it. Um, uh, and I probably, you probably could easily get half, half of those winners to just say yes with one email. Um, but I think it would be tough. Wow. Hey, you do abbreviate, abbreviated season. I mean, you're right. Getting people, I mean, how long was a season? How long were you kind of in, takes, in custody? Yeah. And that's a great, that's kind of a great word. I mean, that, yeah. that's, you know, I mean, you're, you really you're, are. You I mean, are you're just, no, yeah. You're, you're, yeah. How long was it, uh, your production for each season? I mean, you're you're looking at you know somewhere between five and six weeks um, usually for that first part, and then you know a break before finals. Each season changes a little bit. There might, the break between finals might not exist in one season. It might be longer in one season. Um, so, but you're you're definitely looking for you know over a month of literally being. Uh, you know, away from everything. So from family, from business, um, from all relationships, you're just, you know, no phone, no, you know, no, no, no way to communicate with the outside world, except, you know, those few times that you're allowed to call home, et cetera. Uh, so it is, it's a pretty brutal, it's a, pr- it's a brutal game to, to do that. There's, there's a sense of, you know, certainly not in, a, in, in a necessarily a bad way, but there's a sort of Stockholm syndrome quality of it when you're done with it. Uh, when you're released back into the real world, it takes you a couple uh, steps to get your feet on the ground, if that makes sense. Hey, I noticed that uh, like Jen Carroll has to stay on last, last Chance Kitchen, even though she's not competing anymore. I don't, I don't think you, you competed with Last Chance Kitchen on the show, but do they really just hang out for like weeks, even though they've been already eliminated? I don't know. I heard you guys mention that listening to, I think, the last pod and um, – you know, so I haven't watched a lip ever of Last Chance Kitchen. I'm such a bad fan. Um, so I don't know how they were. I, don't, I know that there's some sort of, there's a, there's a couple of people who were in the game before, right? So yes. I'm not quite sure. How, is it, how, how are they actually doing it? Is it? Well, there's a big um, like, so cliffhanger on this one. Okay, got it. So yeah. this is as much as the loser's bracket. And but but I, I think it's always been and tell me if I'm wrong, Tom. Like there's a certain sadness I have for the poor schmucks who are yes. sitting there watching la- it's like they're just like kind of it's this peanut gallery and they have to sit there and they have to cheer and there's no chance of them ever re entering and they're just being detained. And I always feel yeah. a certain sadness for them uh, and they're good sports clearly. And I think they probably, the, the sheer love of cooking and chef life is what keeps them from being completely miserable. Like, like as if they were in a North Korean prison camp or something, but, but it is kind of sad. 
I think you're painting that picture a little more colorful than it is. Yeah. It's sad. <laughs> it's, it's okay. I, I cannot, I cannot imagine, you know, and I, I love Jen Carroll. She's incredibly talented. Um, but I can't imagine having gone through the experience a couple of times and then, you know, not having it work out again for you. And then having to sort of not know if you're going to get back in the game or sit on the sideline, you know, another 10 rounds of it or something like that. So that, that does sound pretty miserable to me, but you know, you sign up for it. So you kind of know that that's a, a possibility. It's, it's, you know, another part of the show that doesn't really get talked about is like what happens when you do, you know, lose. Well, you know, they don't just give you a plane ticket back home. You got to go sit somewhere until the whole thing's wrapped up. So uh, I'm not one that has that experience, but that's always been interesting to me is that that can't be a fun, you know, four weeks or five weeks if, if, if you get sent home early. Okay, last last question before we go. Or, um, one of the last questions here in case, Kevin, you have a follow-up. What are your thoughts on... LeBron James is the MVP this season. Do you believe that the best player should win MVP or is it you have to be coming from the top team? Like, how do you, how do you feel about that? I, you know, I mean, listen, you guys are the experts, so you can, I, I just I want think, you to I geek out on the NBA for a second. So however you want to yeah, take no that worries. question, you can and, geek and out. I, you know, as, as a, as a, as a true average NBA fan, like I just really kind of turned on my NBA meter at Christmas, like most people. Um, so I, I couldn't tell you. I'm assuming that the same, you know, the top four players this year are the same, the top four players from last year. Um, and, you know, I think it should go to the best player. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, it, it has to, you have to be on the best team. So right. um, where does that put LeBron? You guys would have to tell me because I'm not looking at the, at the standings. Um, but yeah, I think it should be just for the, for the best player. Who, I'm embarrassing myself, but who, who won last year? Russell Westbrook, the triple double machine. Okay. Well, I mean, see, like, I mean, they, they were, they didn't have the best team. Right. Um, so yeah, I think it should be just the person who has the, the best season um, a la Westbrook last year. Did you, did you grow up with a certain team and have you stayed loyal to that NBA team or were you just kind of a polygamist NBA fan? Yeah, I'm a massive bandwagon hopper. I live in California right now. I'd be lying <laughs> if I didn't have some golden state gear in the closet. Um, uh, but I grew up uh, in New York. So I, I grew up a, a Knicks fan in like the, you know, most frustrating, but also, uh, you know, positively frustrating moment of, of, of the, um, which was the Patrick Ewing, John Starks, uh, Knicks and oh, Reggie Miller, um, yeah. you know, yeah. one for 21 against the Rockets and Reggie Miller and the choke sign and, and all of that stuff. So Anthony Mason was my favorite Nick of all time. Rest in uh, peace. My sister for the longest time. Yes, rest in peace. Uh, my sister in the long for the longest time wanted to marry John Starks. That was sort of like my, my squad. When <laughs> when you could tackle people in the paint, uh, and the Knicks did, did did plenty of that. So I'm I, I, I listen. I, there's something about uh, Porzingis. I can't lie. Porzingis is bringing me back a little bit. Oh, he's awesome. He's so cool, and he's got the right flair for New York City. He's so much fun. I think he I think he does. Does he have it's- shoes yet? We got to do it. Does he yeah, he's, he's own, an Adidas guy because I've seen him on that new Adidas commercial, that kind of round table, creepy uh, Adidas commercial. How do okay. you, we got that's. How do your kids consume the NBA, or do they do they watch sports or pay attention to Steph Curry? You said you have some Golden State gear. Like, how how do six year olds or however old your kids are, how do they consume the NBA? Um, I mean, basically, it's like sort of whatever dad has on the TV, but I did. And this is an absolute true story. I'm not pandering just because I'm on your podcast. I did tell my youngest my to be a point guard because she's tiny like me um, that we're going to watch a little Iverson at Rucker Park tonight on the YouTube. So like we're going to like just take it to the street tonight 
and see uh, AI dump off his gold chain, you know, courtside. And, uh, oh my you God. know, we're going to watch some Rucker, Rucker Park highlights tonight. <laughs> oh, that, that is a good initiation. You're well done. Excellent parenting. And, we, and, and listen, this is, we need it. We need the Rucker Park for Top Chef. We, we need the next version of, 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 you know, food competition. That's a little, a little bit more, uh, you know, in it, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more from, from, from the, from the street, a little bit more gritty. You know? Oh, Richard, this is a great like idea. This is a, mm-hmm. a, yeah. a, a more primal raw. If, um, we do the McDonald's all American, this is more like Portsmouth or, or, uh, I'm trying to think of the right, um, analogy. It, it escapes me, but yeah, we need something a little more populist. I think, I think so. I kind of like that. I like to, you know, whatever, like just shirts and skins and just get out there and do it. And I think that I, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm working on, uh, producing some content, so hopefully we can sort of land on that magic moment. Because especially now in the food space, with most television shows, I think Top Chef does a good job with most of them just being so absurd with the uh, the gimmicks and twists. You know, there's something to be said about just throw a ball out in the middle of the court, or you know, put some meat on a table and just go cook it. You know, and just have the time to do it and show us what you got, sort of thing. So um, I, I think we could use a little bit more of that in the in the food TV competition space. Great. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Wow. This last hey, comes love, love you guys. You, you guys are awesome. I, I'm, I'm hoping that I get the invite back to be a regular contributor here. Oh, hey, man. Invite extended. <laughs> already there. It's already in your <laughs> inbox. I've already probably typed Whenever, up five emails making sure you got it. Amazing. Whenever you need me, I'll jump on. Five minutes, 50 minutes, whatever you need. Excellent. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Richard. You got it, guys. Thanks. All you right. got it. Bye. This is Pack Your Knives.